Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and we are continuing our discussion on leadership today with my guest, Diana Boer. Diana is the author of Creating Personal Presence, Look, Talk, Think, and Act Like a Leader. To get a copy of Creating Personal Presence, visit the publisher's website, bkconnection.com. You can access today's podcast and all of our programs at bookendsbookclub.net, where you will find free chapters and other resources provided by our guests on our resource blog. Diana, welcome to Bookends. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Susan. In the preface of your book, you describe a fascinating uh, experiment that you've used on the platform, which in a way made you realize the need for this book. Would you describe that experiment for us and tell us about your goals for the book? Well, actually, uh, I really happened onto this, and that is I had uh, a couple of volunteers to come up on stage, and uh, I had them to introduce themselves, tell me about uh, where they work, and just one statement. It can be about a project they're working on, an initiative for the quarter, the, the, the month, or whatever. And I call out Scott take them over to the side of the stage, give them one minute's coaching, and have them to say the same thing. And generally, they only have time to get out a sentence or so. Mm. And the first time I, I did this, there was the, the lady who did it first made a dramatic improvement. When she got through, you know, I asked the audience, what difference do you notice in the presence, the, the lady's presence? And people called out things like she was more engaging, she was more authoritative, more commanding, more uh, relaxed. And then I pressed my luck a little bit the first time I tried this, and I called the second guy up, and he starts down the aisle, and he's I'm thinking, oh, oh man, you know, this is going to be a real mistake, because he was really <laughs> halting when he came down. He was very stiff. Uh-oh. And, then, and then when he took the microphone from me, his voice sounded like a 12-year-old. You know, he was oh. very timid and shy. I thought, oh, you know, it's going to take me a day to work with this person, not, 30, not 60 seconds. And he took the microphone, and I, I, I mean, I put the microphone aside, took him to the side, gave him 60 seconds of coaching. I don't remember what I told him, but I told him a few physical things to do. He came back to the center stage. He implemented those changes, and he was like a different person. I mean, if My he had goodness. had a mask on, he would have been a different person. And the crowd starts applauding, whistling. So I, so I asked, you know, what, what's the difference in his impact on you? And they started, uh, you know, they started saying something. I couldn't quite hear what they were saying. And first of all, they said, you know, more authoritative, commanding, dramatic, and whatever. And he, he started performing. He looked like a rock star. <laughs> getting the microphone back from him. And afterwards, the audience started chanting something. I, I couldn't figure out what they were chanting. And they were saying, plant. Plant. They thought that I had planted these two volunteers in the audience to change oh the And so I, I began to uh, to use these two experiments in my my keynotes. From then on, I've been using those for the last fifteen years to let people see the difference that body language has on how they come across to the group when yeah. they when they really change what they do physically and how they deliver a message. And it makes a dramatic difference in your, you know, how the, the body language and how that either sabotages or supports what you say. Wow. 
a really, really great story. So, so it was as a result of seeing folks like this and those dramatic differences that, that led you to deciding to write the book? Uh, absolutely. You know, I, for, for a long time, I didn't think that you could really talk about presence because I thought it was something that you had to see. Mm-hmm. But after I began to think about it, people said, you know, you can write this. Uh, you really can describe it. So I began to say, yeah, I, I think I can put this in a book. I think with some photographs I, and talking about how people describe their own transformation from the reaction they got, you know, a year ago and the changes they implemented and then the reaction they get after they implement the changes, I really can describe this in a book. So the book really is my um, my experiences and talking with people who've, who've worked and coached, maybe a CEO or COO, who's coached someone up in their career, the changes they've made in those components, either the way they look, the way they talk, the way they think on their feet, and in, in character changes, or somebody who's trying to implement those changes themselves. And, and this book is the result of that. Well, I certainly enjoyed reading it and found it to be very practical and very helpful. You know, uh, Diana, many of us, when we think of Mother Teresa, we picture this quiet, unassuming, very humble kind of woman. But um, in your book, you talk about Mother Teresa as a person with presence and someone who you also suggest leveraged Aristotle's teaching. Would you talk to us about this? Well, sure. I think she did it, not so much with the way she you know, she she certainly wasn't a dress for success person. She, you know, she wore the um, the physical trappings of her um, profession and her ministry, but through her conviction, her character, the actions she took, uh, the goodwill that she engendered, I think that's how she communicated her presence. All of those character issues are are part of presence. It's not just about body language. It is not just about the the perception. It's it's all of that. It's your follow through, your commitment. There are character issues involved as well. So, uh, you know, Bernie Madoff, the, the guy that pulled off all the scams, oh, he yeah. certainly had. Uh, he certainly had the body language. He fooled a lot of people, a lot of very sharp financial people. So he had the language of presence and persuasiveness, but he didn't have the character and those other things. So it's it's all all four essentials that I described in the the subtitle of the book. All of those have to be there, and she certainly had had the conviction in her body language. She had the conviction in her facial expression. She had the language of persuasiveness, the appropriate word choice, and the character and the goodwill and the concern that, that go with presence. Now, how, how would you um, suggest that she used some of Aristotle's teachings? Is it, is it really the character pieces that you're referring to, or was there something else yes. specific? Yes. Aristotle really, it, this all of character issues go back to the Greeks and Aristotle. He said there are three things that really make you authoritative and persuasive. One, he said, logic. People don't think that they make decisions by emotion, but they do. They, they justify it with logic and they make emotional decisions. So you have to te- touch people emotionally. 
And of course, she touched people emotionally uh, with, with concrete examples of, of specific people who are in need that needed our help. But Aristotle said you also have to, to give people logical reasons to do something. And so by with your language, you, you give, you know, if you're making a presentation to a business owner or a, a, a customer or a buyer, you lay out, you know, here are four reasons, here are three advantages, here are statistics. So you, you touch them emotionally, you give them logical reasons to do whatever you want them to do. And then the, the third characteristic that Aristotle laid out, he used three terms for this, con, this concept. He said, character, integrity, and trustworthiness. And the fact that you can explain without ambiguity what you want somebody to do and you demonstrate that you have goodwill and your intentions are full of uh, integrity communicates character. And that has to come through at some point. Now, they may not know you well, and so they don't know that you have bad character. Mm -hmm. But after they're around you a while, that does show through. Yeah, and Bernie Madoff is a, a really good example, I think, of <laughs> what you're talking right. about there. I mean, he may right. have learned and, physically how to use his body and, and so forth, but eventually, as right. you said earlier, his character came through. Right, and that's that's the case with politicians. You know, we only see mm -hmm. what gets packaged and, and conveyed over the media. But after a while, if you're, you know, if you're investigated enough, uh, either the media reveals it or you, you, you mix and mingle long enough or you catch a politician off guard, you ask a question, uh, you see inconsistencies, and that's where a character comes in. And you mm -hmm. see, well, are they leading a double life? Is there, is there something that are they portrayed in one way with their website and their public persona and they're living another life somewhere else? Right. And then when we find, and when we find those are not in sync, then then there's a problem there. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly it's a great time, uh, once again, for us to be observing some of that kind of thing. Um, so easy to tap into during election times, that's for certain. <clears throat> so I, I would think I you would lot, lots of good material for you. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking it provides lots of great material for you and your work, <laughs> practical right, examples. Right. Yeah. Right. We want well, our CEOs, our politicians, we want we want what they say and do to match what we see. I yeah. mean, they they need to be in sync. Yes. Authentic. Absolutely. Well, your book, as you mentioned just a, a little bit ago, is organized into four parts. Those parts are look, talk, think, and act. And in the look section, you share a personal experience that highlights the significance of presence. Would you describe for us the outcome of the interviews that you held? You talk about this in the book uh, with two young women, Caitlin and Rachel, who were both applying for some work at your consulting firm. Yes. Um, Caitlin came in, and she had a great outward appearance, great presence. You know, the, the firm handshake, the great body language. Uh, she was able to think on her feet well, uh, very authoritative language. And... I didn't do as much testing as I should have. Rachel uh, came in, and she knew a, a colleague through a mutual acquaintance. I really wanted to hire her because of the referral through a mutual acquaintance. But she didn't have a firm handshake. Her body language, she kind of slumped in the chair. 
and she was tentative when she answered questions. She didn't really present herself well at all. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to hire her. I hired the one who presented herself well. And that shows you the power of presence. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. But big mistake, <laughs> big mistake. <laughs> the, one who, the one who presented herself well just could not do the job. She had uh, mastered the skills of an interviewer, uh, the applicant, and she fooled me well in the interview. But her customer service skills were not good. Uh, mm-hmm. She could not master the software. And because we're a communication firm, we need someone who communicates well on the phone, who writes extremely well, and who does email well. And she, she couldn't ha- handle the job. And so basically I had to let her go after about three weeks. Oh, and I called, I called the first one back who didn't present herself well and offered her the job. We were able to coach her. And with, you know, our communication consultants in and out of the office, she was able to model and emulate them. We gave her great training on the communication skills that she needed. She was able to listen to the phone calls, what to say. And within a few months, she was an excellent communicator. But, but my point in, in that is, as business owners, as leaders, we can easily be fooled by the outward, you know, the easily observable, um, the, the, the language, the, the excellent body language, and, but you can learn it just like uh, Rachel did. You can uh-huh. learn those things, and they're easily observable when you do. They're not always uh, – t- people don't in, have them intuitively. You can learn them and and quickly as well. Yeah, it's a really a great great example, you know, in terms of the importance of this and how we present ourselves. And and uh, for many folks, I would think that really um, have uh, you know the potential to be that high performer, but just are are missing that those you know that polishing of being able to communicate and present themselves in a way that um, gives others the confidence that they can do the job. Right, and it stalls your career, and it, you know it's so changeable it's just people stall themselves out somewhere right before the vice president the presidential level and they have the technical competence to do the job mm-hmm. but they can't go to the next level because they don't have those really observable things that are holding them back and with just a little effort and a little polish they could get to the next level if right. they knew what was holding them back in the in the body language things and the language area, the ability to think quickly on their feet. Because, you know, people can't follow you around all day to see how you make decisions, to see how you sure. um, to see how you handle difficult situations, to see how you analyze a problem. They just see the results of your technical competence because that's what you communicate to your boss, to a customer. And if you don't handle that piece of it, the part that you communicate to somebody else about your work, then you get judged by that, whether it's a valid judgment or not. That's what people are judging you by. And if you can just Absolutely. fix that piece or polish that piece of your work, then then you go places really quickly and get promotions really quickly. Great input. And um, definitely uh, the book is full of all kinds of practical support to help people do just that. And let's talk about uh, one of the areas that is very, very visible, and that's, of course, dress. Um, And this is getting to be, I think, probably um, a fairly confusing um, piece of how we present ourselves in the workplace today when the rules on dress seem to be 
so relaxed. So how do we know um, you know, what, if what we're wearing is appropriate or when we should dress up or when we should dress down and what does dressing down look like? Um, you know, how far can you really go with that and have it still be okay? Um, um, and, and when we need to dress up, how can we be sure that we are making the right choices? Um, could you advise us just around this whole area of, of dress, Diana? Well, basically, my, my point in the book is to dress for decision. <laughs> and by that, I mean people make decisions on how you dress. They, if you walk in and say, I'm here about the job, and, and a company or a hiring executive has two or three jobs out there they're hiring for, they make a snap decision what, what job you're talking about based on how you're dressed. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the, the, the opening that you have in the executive suite? Are they talking about the middle management position? Are they talking about the job in the mailroom? And they're basing that on how you look. What do you have on? And we're not talking about expensive. You should obviously dress for what you can afford. But you should – people are always saying, well, I need to be comfortable. Well, fine. Comfort and dressing well are not mutually exclusive. You want to be comfortable. You'll look odd and seem uh, like you don't fit your clothes if you're not comfortable. But that doesn't mean that it should be, it should not be, uh, it should fit you well, the fabric should be appropriate, the color should go with your own uh, personal coloring, you know, your hair color, your complexion color. It should fit your body style. Uh, it should your clothes should be appropriate for the occasion. All of those are things that go into your decision about to what you wear. And if you say dress doesn't matter, you're just uninformed. It does matter. You can ask any hiring executive, any person who's in a position to promote you, and you will realize how much it really does count. Yeah, I, I certainly agree, and it's it. it you know, it does seem to be uh, a confusing area for a lot of folks just in, in you know, light of what we see um, out there in the workplace today. Um, right. It, it, there's just so many different approaches to dress today, and some of them are um, interesting. <laughs> right, right. I tell you, you know, when I, when I coach, generally I'm coaching a CEO or COO or CFO has sent me somebody usually at the vice president level or somebody they're trying to get to the vice presidential level for coaching. And, and in the book, I've listed a whole bunch of comments. These are, these are authentic comments that some, some of those C-suite officers have said to me about someone and where they need polish. And mm-hmm. I've, some of the comments there were things like, uh, he's sloppy on his shirt sleeve. He doesn't, you know, when they have men have four buttons on their sleeve. He doesn't mm-hmm. spot button that fourth button. To me, that's inattention oh. to detail. <laughs> My <laughs> or, goodness. Um, or she does, She always wears open-toe shoes, and they should know that someone that's in executive management doesn't wear open-toe shoes. Uh-huh. Or um, his hair always looks just disheveled, like, just like he got out of bed in the morning. He should know someone at this level is not going to have their hair like that. You know, those yeah. are comments that if, if they have nothing more <laughs> – to comment on them, that is their impression of that person. Right. They're saying that's how they consider their attention to their job. They're yeah, saying if yeah. that's their attention to their dress, that's the attention they give to their job. And that's yeah. the 
that's the analogy they make. Uh, Absolutely. I heard I heard someone say, uh, working for an airline, they say if a passenger gets on an airplane and they pull down the mill tray and there's a big coffee stain on the mill tray, to them that means we don't service our engines in the airplane. Yeah. Yes, and, it does. And so, and likewise, if you make a mistake on, or you find a mistake on your credit card bill, you're thinking, well, maybe they don't amortize my loan right either. Maybe they're charging me too much interest. I mean, you make those kind of associations. And so executives make that same kind of association. If you dress that sloppy, you probably are not doing your work any better. Right. And, right. and so you want to you stop those kinds of associations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of fascinating, too, because the kinds of things that you described that you hear, the feedback that you've gotten from people in executive levels about their perceptions of their peers and colleagues – tend to be the kind of feedback that they have a difficult time verbalizing out loud to these peers and colleagues. So what they end up doing is they end up uh, losing respect. They don't talk about it. They don't bring it out into the open, but they tend to sort of their respect for that person kind of starts to decrease and it affects the relationship. Uh, So it's so important for us to pay attention to those small details. They um, really are impacting our our success every day. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, the fact that leaders need presence when they present their ideas in formal settings. And you share a number of great tips, I think, in in, um, one of the chapters, which is called Take Stage. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about some of some of your tips for helping people have the presence, being able to tap into that presence when they need it? Well, you know, my communication training firm spends a lot of time. We have consultants who go out and do presentations, programs for corporations like um, sales presentations or any kind of presentations they might be doing. And some of the tips we pass along there is when you get ready to do a presentation, you don't want to just drift in and drift out. You want to take stage, and by that I mean stand visibly front and center. You've seen people who get up in a meeting, and they start talking the minute they get up from their chair as they're walking to the front of the room. You don't want to do that. You want to be visibly in front of the room before you start talking. Pause. Count to five under your breath before you start. That builds anticipation before you start for the opening part. And then don't waste that time and on throwaway lines, you know, like, it's great to be with you. I had a hard time getting in this morning. Isn't the traffic terrible? You don't want to do all those kind of little throwaway lines. When you open your mouth, it should be with a significant statement to grab attention. And then when you talk and you have a, let's say you have a crowd. I don't care if you have eight people in the room or you have, and it's even more important if you had 200 in the room and you're presenting, let's say, to a Uh, a group of staff members, you know, an all-hands meeting or whatever, talk to the people in the back. The the tendency is to talk to the people who are sitting right down front because you've got stronger eye contact with them. But what you should do, really, is to pick out two or three people in different sections of the room who are seated at the back. And if you will look at those people and project to those people, everybody will feel included. Because your your body just sort of automatically adjusts, and you you project to them just like if you were standing at McDonald's on Saturday getting a hamburger with your kids, and one of them starts down the slide and they fall and you are doing something dangerous, and you say, "Tommy, watch it!" You know, you're you just automatically 
your whole body and your volume of your voice adjust to what your eyes see. Right. So if you're so if you're looking at somebody on the back row and they are looking back at you expecting some information, your whole body language adjusts to that person and you will seem larger than life. So you want to project to those those seats back in the back. Uh, you, you also want to walk with purpose when you're up in front of a group instead of pacing. You know, we've all heard of the old, I'm sure Susan, you've heard of the old college professor pace from one side <laughs> of the room to the other. Uh, the, the, the salesperson thing is sometimes from the projector back to the front, from the projector hit the key back in front, or you've got the remote even today with the remote. You just kind of walk back and forth in this little pattern. You don't want to do that. You want to plant your feet, make a point, and then move on the transition to another spot, make a point, move to another spot on the transition, make a point. But have a purposeful walk, not just a little pacing pattern. So those are, you know, those are physical things you can do to engage people and look like you're there presently and not on automatic pilot. Those are great, really great tips, and that was an, um, an excellent chapter for, for those of us that are frequently in that kind of role. So I certainly appreciated that chapter, Diana. Um, in another chapter, um, which you, is, is titled, Be Professional, Not Professorial, which I thought was a, a really fun <laughs> title, you share some really great input on the use of jargon. Would you coach us on why using jargon is a bad idea and share your tips for clear communication with us? Well, jargon, you know, a lot of people, I think, have the, the wrong idea about jargon. They tend to think that jargon makes them an insider. And if they, particularly when they're calling on a customer or if they're new in an organization, they think, well, this makes me feel like I'm included, like I really know your industry, I really know what I'm talking about. But actually jargon makes you feel, makes you seem really limited, that you're a specialist, but that you really don't see the big picture and that you really are a um, specialized person who can't get outside your industry, outside this one little silo of information. And so what you want to do is to be able to understand when somebody else uses jargon and understand what they're talking about. But you want to be able to translate what a, a specific uh, need or problem or issue is to the big picture that anybody can understand. Um, I, I mentioned an incident in the book where a, a lawyer uh, in fact, he's telling this in the Wall Street Journal, one of the columnists, if you happen to read him, Adam uh, Freeman. He's an attorney and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He talks about the, the lesson he learned when he was a young associate. He was uh, he had written a brief, and he said, Plaintiff Joe Doe, John Doe is currently serving a custodial sentence in the New York State penal system. Huh. And the partner of the firm took out his red pen and edited it and says, John Doe is a prisoner at Sing Sing. <laughs> you know, he, he made his point about, you know, just using simple language. And I had a similar situation a long time ago, and I've always felt that way about jargon, but I had a similar incident where I was um, at an oil company and I was talking to the um, CEO or plant, and plant manager, and they had an explosion. This, this plant operates around the clock 24 hours, and they had an explosion. They'd been uh, totally closed down and mm. 
So uh, Gene, who's the plant manager, was talking about he had taken the eight engineers and their spouses out to dinner after they'd gotten it all repaired and back in operation. And he leaned back and he said, you know, we're going to have to get this uh, report done and tell me what happened. And one of the engineers says, well, how about uh, we write the report up and I just tell you it broke and we fixed it. <laughs> and, and Gene says, "Great! If you can do it that simply, I'll be fine. You know, I'll be fine with it." Uh, uh, the, the higher you are in an organization, the more a generalist you are, and you, uh-huh. you've got people in specialized areas all over. You know, you've got the software people, you've got the you've got the lawyers, you've got the the security people, you've got the compliance, you know, the, the legal people. You need people to translate in their special yes. area for the lay person to understand and make solid decisions. And so that's a mark of uh, intelligence to be able mm-hmm. to take a technical area and write it so that anybody in any field can understand what you're telling them. Yeah, I think this is really important input. And uh, I think many of us are um, guilty of you know, really not thinking about how what we're saying is really um, excluding people uh, that that really um, per- are interested in, in the message we're trying to deliver. Good input. You describe an interesting coaching assignment uh, that you had where you were asked to help a group of executives. They were going to be preparing for their roles in an upcoming awards banquet their company was hosting. Can you tell us why you were concerned about this project and how you advise folks who may have some of the same kinds of challenges as this particular group of executives? Well, in this particular situation, they were trying to reward the employees, you know, for a successful year for their, and some of them long-term tenure. There were various reasons they were getting awards. But, and they, it was a very scripted event. Then Gayla had spent you know, millions of dollars on this. But because of the script, they hadn't practiced reading it. And they sounded like, see, Jane, run. Because they had they had not practiced with the teleprompter and they thought no big deal. So my coaching assignment really was to help them. First of all, I had to improve the script, but to just help them understand that they weren't at the mercy of a teleprompter, but the teleprompter was to follow them. They just needed to read it with expression. So some people try to. to make it much more difficult than it is. And I always coach, first of all, to tell people, don't script things, don't write it out. It should be said from your heart. But if you're forced to, for some reason, use a teleprompter, use it well. (laughs) Learn how to to do it. And uh, it's just that important. If you're going to reward people for something, don't make it sound like you're, you know, you're you're reading something to them. Say Say it from your heart. And, the way you say something, if you sound like somebody has forced you to do it, obviously it doesn't sound too authentic and too too, too real. So plan. Don't don't try to wing something. If you're rewarding employee, you're giving them feedback. You're in a performance appraisal. Make your comments authentic, but learn how to how to do it without reading. Yeah, good input. You offer two great tools in your chapter called Move the Conversation Forward. One is bridging and the other is reframing. Can you tell us how to use these tools effectively? Yes. You know, 
when you have opportunity to talk to uh, maybe it's a key customer or to talk to your boss, you want to say something significant. I was talking to a, um, a colleague not too long ago, and he was saying that they were preparing for a big networking event. Their CEO is going to be there, their chairman of the board, president, and they bring in all of their regional directors, divisional directors. And he said they, they his term was they download on their employees. And what he meant mm. by that is they, these C-suite officers use this two-day networking event to, to really um, get an estimation or evaluation of how all of these employees are doing in their jobs. You know, are they really staying up? What are their leadership capabilities? Who should they promote into better positions? And he said that the uh, COO made this comment after this two-day meeting. He had had a, a dinner meeting, a special one-on-one dinner meeting with one of them. He was thinking that maybe this one was not pulling his weight and maybe they were going to terminate him. And so he oh. set up this special dinner meeting to, quote, download on him and uh, see, see what he had to say. And he said the most significant thing that this regional manager said to him that evening was, try that sauce. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and his point, of course, was here, here he's got, you know, two hours where the, where the CEO is a captive audience, and that right. was the most significant thing he could say to me. Yeah. So one point, oh. of course, is to prepare your talking points. You know, mm. if you're going to a networking event, and you know you have opportunity to network with a client or boss or key colleagues or um, strategic partners, Knows, know what you want to get across. What are some key things you want to say? Just like a politician prepares talking points, prepare right. your talking points or significant questions you want to ask. And even if the conversation goes in another way, learn how to bridge back. If, for example, you might say something like, well, those, those are key issues. You know, the more urgent question I think we need to be addressing is, or the more critical factor I think in this whole issue, though, I think we need to focus on is, Mm-hmm. Whatever to make those are bridging statements that bring whatever the discussion at hand is back to your topic, your discussion, your question, your priority, and they show your leadership skills. They right. they know that they show that you know what's important or what's on your mind or what you think is a priority to to be talking about. Yeah, that those are those are great tools and and very helpful to to keep things on track and. Um, focus the conversation in a productive, helpful way. Uh, I think probably many times we walk into situations and aren't really prepared, as, as you have just described, and, and miss opportunities. You also share in the book, I think, kind of a funny quote from Voltaire, who said, the best way to be boring is to leave nothing out. <laughs> I found that to be kind of humorous. And this statement frames your chapter called Cut Through the Clutter. Would you share some of the highlights that you get from this, uh, from, um, from this chapter? Well, I think in our day and age that we are all just bombarded with information, of whether it's social media or whether it's our email inbox or our desk and just piled high, and so or people making presentations to us. So I think we have to grab attention to be heard. We're, even if you go in and to hear a presentation, everybody's wanting to send one more text message, one more email. Yeah. Um, and if it's social media, I mean, there's, 
you know, the three major platforms that we can connect with people. So you have to grab attention immediately with your subject line, with your opening line, if it's a live presentation, with your webinar, if it's a, a, a live webinar. Be relevant when you grab that attention. And then you have to, another key thing to keep in mind is to summarize succinctly to be clear, not talking all around the point before you get to the point. You know, back in third grade when you were giving a book report, you started at the beginning, you know, once upon a time, and you, you started to tell the whole book. But, but you can't do that anymore. And I, I tweet that I, I, I did about uh, two years ago that actually got retrieved almost for a two-year period and I think it, it, the reason it got retweeted so often is because people identify with somebody wasting their time. I said, if you, here was a tweet. If you can't say it in a sentence, if you can't write it in a sentence, you can't say it in an hour. I'll repeat yeah, that. That's you can't great. write it in a sentence, you can't say it in an hour. And people kept retweeting that and retweeting it and retweeting it and retweeting it. And I think it's because they identify with those people who have to sit in a meeting for four hours or three hours for people who ramble and ramble and ramble and say the same thing. And so hmm. if you, you know, if we're just bored out of our minds all the time because of people who don't get to the point in a meeting or in a presentation, yeah. you just have to learn to summarize succinctly to make your point. Absolutely. And then the, the third thing, um, going back to the Voltaire uh, comment is just to be brief, when you when you do make a point, it's not about what you can put in because we can all go on the internet and research pages and pages and pages of information to make our point. So that the decision becomes, what can we leave out? When you make a presentation, what can you leave out, or what should you leave out? And that's always the decision. And uh, knowing that sets you apart as a leader. Yeah. And I think your experience as a writer, uh, Diana, I, I, I know I've, I've only written one book, and I know you've written dozens. Um, but for me, the experience of writing was about, you know, getting something on paper and then, like, getting rid of at least half the words. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating how many extra words we use. Um, I, I found this to be a really helpful part of the book. Um, uh, I want to thank you for it. Tell us a little bit about how we can think more like Hollywood. Well, you know, in Hollywood, it's all about the story. It, basically, they say if you, you'll never sell a movie unless you can summarize the plot in a sentence. And you, you just have to be able to tell a good story. So there's where I've sort of tied the succinctness to the value of telling a story. When Steve Jobs was known for his storytelling, when he spoke at a commencement exercise or even for business audiences at major trade shows, he got up and told a story. And I think the same is true in a business setting. If you want to make a point, you make the point memorable and you make it easy for people to retain that for weeks and months and be able to convey it to down the line throughout the organization by conveying it in a story. 
and then create a good soundbite. If you want to know if you've been successful in making a point, if they're still talking about it next week with something like, well, you remember what Susan said Monday in the staff meeting? She said we just need to blah, 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 and they have a little slogan, then you know you've been successful. Hmm. You know, uh, how many millions of dollars companies pay PR firms to come up with slogans like just do it or can right. you hear me now or where's the beef or, you know, all those things that we still remember and those ads came out 20 years ago, we'll leave mm-hmm. a light on for you or, you know, and we're still quoting those lines and reframing them in different ways. Can you hear me now? The, all those 15 minutes will get you, you know, what's Geico's line? All of those 15 minutes will get you cheaper insurance from Geico. You can just quote those lines because sure. they're, they're succinct and they're quotable. Right. So you, telling a good story, creating a good soundbite, using a metaphor, using an analogy, those are things that they do in Hollywood to get people to talk about their movie, to remember a scene, to remember a scene. And that's what you have to do to drive your strategy. If you're a leader and you want people to cut expenses, you can't just give them slides full of data mm-hmm. and expect them to remember it. Or here are 10 strategies for such and such, and here's all the numbers to, here are all the numbers to back that up, and here's how every department did. When they walk out, they won't remember any of that. So true. Unless, unless you embody it in two or three examples for what you know one division has done, and you have a good slogan, and you have a metaphor to, to wrap it all up. And so that's, that's what we mean by think like Hollywood to drive home a point. And I think what you've been you know, really starting to talk about here is really uh, engaging people on an emotional level. That's what's going to enable them to re-quote or retweet or, or you know, re-share the message because it's really um, impacted them on an emotional level. And, of course, you get into that in more detail in Chapter 16 where you tell us that there are two things that get people to invite us into their lives. You talk about credibility and likability. How do we become more likable? Well, you know, that obviously that's subjective, and there are a lot of things, but I think one of the most important things is to be approachable. You, you don't like somebody if you don't feel comfortable to be around them. To, I mean, that's one thing we can learn from the political scene <laughs> and from politicians is they get out and they shake hands. And they go to door to door and they go stand in the grocery store parking lot and say, come up and talk to me. Ask me a question. They have a town hall meeting and they say, I'm going to rub shoulders with the, with the people here. So you have to be approachable as a leader, as a, as a manager. You have to say, ask me a question. You want me to explain these numbers and how we do this, how we come to decisions like we made last quarter? And those are the things that make you likable. Admitting mistakes, um, Uh that's that's being approachable. I think another thing that makes you likable is to listen like you mean it. (laughs) And what I mean by that, we've all stood at networking events, cocktail parties, receptions, in which you were in a circle and somebody's talking about something and you 
are telling. It's, it's your turn to make a comment or tell a story. And people are listening half-heartedly. They're looking around the room like where's the more important or <laughs> significant conversation happening. And they're giving you a, a yes, mm-hmm, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. And you know if you ask them a question about what you said, they have no clue what you said. So true. But, but somebody who listens intently to what you said and asks you questions and really expresses interest and even follows up the next time they see you, you ask, they ask you about what you said last time. Mm-hmm. You can't help but like that person. I mean, you, you just really are drawn to that person. So I think those are two ways that you really become a likable person. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree. In fact, I've heard um, another author use the statement, listening is loving. And so, you know, we're really giving mm-hmm. Uh, ourselves when we do that so naturally people would would um, really appreciate us when we do that I was really pleased to find a chapter in your book on modesty and manners Um, first let's talk a little bit about gadgets Um, when if ever is it appropriate to access these in meetings or social situations and how do you recommend people manage their gadgets appropriately. We all tend to have these um, in our briefcases, purses, everywhere we go. How do we manage our gadgets? Well, I think that there is a difference in the having them and having access to them as opposed to actually interrupting what's going on currently, like a conversation. We have them because they are there for emergency. Most of us, if you're a parent, you carry a cell phone because you want your spouse or your child or your your elderly parents to be able to get in touch with you if there's a true emergency. But you, what you, what's ill-mannered is to interrupt a conversation that you're having live with someone and take a phone call. You, what you're saying to the other person is, wait a minute, there's a high priority here now. Somebody else has called me. It's much the same thing. I don't know if you feel this way, Susan, but I'm checking out, let's say, at um, a department store. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, and that person at the cash register who's ringing up my purchase stops for another customer, and the customer's <laughs> calling in asking the price on towels, and they say, oh, excuse me, let me go check the price on that. And they put down the phone and go check. And I want to say, wait a minute, I'm yeah. here. I'm live. <laughs> You're checking me out. Why are you stopping to go help the other person who just happened to call in? I'm the priority here. You should tell the person on the phone to wait and finish my purchase. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. And that's what happens with the, with the phone call. If you're having a live conversation and somebody calls in, you don't stop your conversation and take the other call. Right. It only if it's an emergency. So if you look there and you see, okay, this person or this this is truly emergency, but just to pick up the other phone and say, oh, John, yeah, okay, well, let me tell you, yeah, the swimming pool, yeah, I was going to tell you, the swimming pool does have a leak. Can you come over Saturday? <laughs> you know, that is not an emergency. Right. Uh, so, you know, or if you are expecting a call, before you start a conversation, and let's say you're, you know, you're talking to a colleague here and you say, I'm going to set my phone here. I hope we don't get interrupted, but my daughter or such and such is going such and such, and I asked him to check in with me. Then you've told them ahead of time that something may happen, that you may get interrupted, 
and then it's not like I'm I'm giving somebody else permission to be a higher priority. Right, right. Yeah, just really good common sense kinds of things that unfortunately are not commonly practiced. <laughs> right, right. Uh, my, and, my. And, most, and most people know know that they don't want to be treated that way. Mm-hmm, if they mm-hmm. were, if they were the reverse, they they get irritated, but they mm-hmm. don't realize it when they're doing it to someone else. Yeah. Well, thank you for the tip that you share in the book on how to – we talked a little earlier. You were talking about networking and you know being in those events where you're having those conversations and trying to practice those good listening skills. In, in the book, you share a tip on how to exit um, one of those networking conversations in a way that's polite and also uh, shows confidence. Could you – I think this is you know a challenging thing. How do you – um, move away from a person you've been engaged in a conversation with? How do you do that in a way that demonstrates politeness but also um, your need to, to move uh, on? Could you, could you share your tip with us? Yeah, well, you, you definitely want to close up that statement. You don't want to just disappear. You're standing there and there's four of you talking and all of a sudden you just bow out of the conversation. You can start just talking in past tense. And use a closing statement, something like, well, it was great to meet you, John. Uh, now I know why Bill speaks so highly of you. Or um, I'm going to see if I can catch up with some other news on the XYZ situation. Um, and you tell them, in other words, you tell them your, your body language, you're turning over here to another conversation. You see such and such, and you point in that direction. You say, well, uh, thank you, Susan. I'm, I appreciate that information. I'm going to walk over here and see if I can... Uh, catch up with uh, Sally and see what she's doing about the project she's working on. So you're telling them a direction you're going and what you're going to be doing over there. So those are two ways you can, quote, end the conversation. So you can talk in the past tense, tell them what you liked about what you just heard or what you're going to do next, what your next stop is or your next objective. But in either case, you said, I'm winding it up here. Mm -hmm. You don't want to just vanish. Yeah, very helpful. Very, very helpful. And finally, as we wrap up our time together today, Diana, could you share your basic rules on, or of business etiquette and, and your down and dirty rules, you call them down and dirty rules of dining etiquette. Um, these are, again, some, some areas that we don't get lots of counsel or coaching in. And um, you know, quite frankly, a lot of us find it uh, a bit confusing when we sit down in, in more formal environments. Could you help us through some of that? Sure. Well, you know, some of the simpler ones, uh, you know, there's in past there's been confusion on, you know, who who pays for what now, and it's just pretty simple. Whoever invites somebody to a breakfast or a lunch usually pays, unless it's very clear that this is a Dutch treat. It's just if you invite somebody out to a, a meal, you you should arrive first as a host, and you, you pay. Um, introductions, when you're introducing somebody, you call the most respected person's name first. Uh, for example, uh, Mr. Boss, I'd like to introduce my son to you. He's just finishing up at the university this year. Or if, you're, if it's a client, obviously you're showing respect or honor to that person. So you say, uh, Ms. VIP client, I'd like to introduce you to my administrative assistant, Sharon. She's doing such and such. Um, she's helping assist or plan this meeting. So call their name first mm-hmm. and introduce the other person to them. Um, 
dine, as far as dining etiquette or rules, um, what you don't want to do is play the shuffle. You've seen people sit, you know, around at some kind of table if it's a luncheon and there are eight or ten people around the table and, oh, is this my bread plate? Is this your, is this your water? <laughs> my water? Uh-huh. There's a real simple way to remember that. I Think hope so. <laughs> BMW cars. If you'll think of that, it's always bread, water, uh, bread, meal, water. So your bread plate is always over here on the left. Your meal, your entree, here in the, right in front of you, and then your water is going to be over here on the right. So if you're sitting there, just always think BMW. Bread plate, great. left, meal, water. So that will help you keep it straight so you don't have to shuffle things around. And then uh, your flatware, general rule, you know, if you think, I've got so many utensils here, I don't know, you know, we've got the hors d'oeuvre utensil, we've got a salad fork, there's a dessert, there's some <laughs> on the top of it, you know. Just the key thing to think here is work from the outside to the inside. Whatever utensil they have on the very outside, that's the, the fork that's to the extreme left, you pick that up first, and then, then closer to your plate, and then the one closer to your plate. Same thing about the spoons, whatever's on the outside is intended for you to use with your ice, if you have iced tea or whatever you're, the beverage you're stirring with, and then if you move in, it's in to the right, or whatever, mm-hmm. you're, you're moving left to right. You pass food again from left to right. Good tips. I've got about two pages of just general tips, real, really simple for you to and remember. They were great and extremely helpful, and I love BMW. That you just can't imagine. That's <laughs> that's one of my <laughs> my personal challenge areas when I sit down at a table. It's oh my. So I really thank you for that. And um, sure. once again, Diana, just really want to thank you for joining us today on Bookends. It's been so much uh, fun to to meet you and talk with you today after reading your wonderful book. Thanks for being here with us today. Sure, sure. Enjoyed it, Susan. Well, I want to encourage uh, anyone listening to this interview to get their own copy of Creating Personal Presence, which uh, we've really only scratched the surface today, and I'm sure that you will enjoy it and find it to be a great guidebook. Um, So to get your copy, once again, please visit the publisher's website, which is www.bkconnection.com. All of Bookends podcasts can be found on our website at bookendsbookclub.net. Be sure to check out our resource blog for resources provided by the authors that are featured on this program. Bookends is brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman. I'm Susan Stamm, and thank you for listening. 